You are listening to a sermon by Dr. Richard Caldwell, produced by Walking in Grace. Walking in Grace is a listener-supported ministry. If you'd like to know how you can help these messages reach more people, visit walkingingrace.org media. If you would please join with me in turning to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 12. We're going to read beginning at verse 1. We'll read down to verse 8. The Word of God says this, At that time Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and His disciples became hungry and began to pick the heads of grain and eat. But when the Pharisees saw this, they said to Him, Look, your disciples do what is not lawful to do on a Sabbath. But he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he became hungry, he and his companions, how he entered the house of God and they ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for him to eat nor for those with him, but for the priests alone? Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple break the Sabbath and are innocent? But I say to you that something greater than the temple is here. But if you had known what this means, I desire compassion and not a sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Let's go to our God together in prayer and ask for His blessing this morning. Father in heaven, thank You. For my brothers and sisters, thank you, Lord, for this church. Before me are a group of people who love you and love your word. And Together, Lord, we do hunger and thirst to be what you have saved us to be. In so many areas of our lives, we are like that man who said, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. We desire, Lord, help us where at times we don't desire as we should work in our lives in such a way that our lives become more and more in practice what they are in principle, what they are in theology and doctrine. Lord, unite our hearts to fear You. Part of our struggle, we know, Lord, is our physical nature. We live in a body that is not fit for eternity, and so it is in the process of dying. And that means that we deal with all sorts of challenges weariness, struggles with health at times. Lord, there are some here this morning, no doubt, who are struggling in the realm of health. and They love you, but Lord, they're also dealing with all of the things that come with life on this side of the resurrection. Lord, would you strengthen us, despite our physical ailments, to be well in the realm of our souls. And Lord, it's amazing how even when we're doing well spiritually, that enlivens us physically. And so, Lord, would you, would you let us know what it means when we say the joy of the Lord is our strength? Lord, would you be at work in this time of preaching? Would you help me to declare the wonders of your Son? Would you walk, watch over this time in a way that, Lord, what I say would be pleasing to you and healthy and good for your people? As has already been mentioned, we do pray for those in our midst who don't know you, while we gather as your church, we know that there are some who are included in the visible church that are not truly your people. Not on purpose, Lord. We strive to examine and hear testimonies every time someone joins this church, but we know that there are some who join the church in the physical realm who do not yet belong to the church in the spiritual realm. We ask, Lord, for salvation for those visiting who don't know your son, for those hearing me, outside this meeting place who don't know your son, would you save? And then, Lord, would you do in the life of your people everything you've ordained to do with your all-sufficient word? Thank you for the word of God. Thank you that you've entrusted this miraculous book, as it were, into our hands. We give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Chapter 11, verse 28. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest 
for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus offers rest to the weary laborer. We talked about it last week. The rest that he offers is the rest of forgiveness. It is the rest of justification by faith, knowing that you stand before the Lord accepted in the Beloved. It is the rest of fellowship with God. It is the rest found, as we sang a moment ago, of a sure and steadfast hope. You know what your future is. You know where you're headed. You know that it's secure. Christ offers rest to those who are weary in their sin. But as the verses that follow will demonstrate, there is another kind of weariness that Jesus offers rest for. Not just concerning the sin itself, but concerning the false and empty religion that exists in that sin. Rest from the weariness of trying to work your way to heaven. Rest from the weariness of practices that promise you help, but they are empty promises. Christ is speaking to a people who were weary, weary to the point of exhaustion under a false religious system. When he talks about the weary in verse 28, kapiao is the word, meaning to grow weary, to toil, to work to the point of exhaustion. I wonder how many people in this room could testify that when, when the Lord Jesus saved you, He didn't just deliver you from your sins, but He also delivered you from a wearying kind of religious activity that existed in your life when you were in that realm of sin, when you were lost. Some of it could have been formal. There, there are false churches that have systems by which their people save themselves. That would certainly be wearying. But all of us were born into this world believing in a works righteousness approach to salvation. If you had asked any of us before we knew Jesus how we were going to be saved, now I'm talking about people not raised in a Christian home who were taught the gospel from knee high up. I'm talking about people like me who were raised for many years in a home where the gospel was not clearly understood by me. If you had asked me, how are you going to get to heaven, it would have been a combination of what Jesus did, because I did know about Jesus, but a combination of what Jesus did and what I had to do. And so when the Lord saved me, He delivered me not just from my sins, but from that exhausting attempt at self-righteousness. The Jewish spiritual leaders at the time of Christ represented that kind of oppressive religion. What they taught what they enforced, what they expected, wore people out. It was oppressive and it was demonic. John called the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, he called them a brood of vipers. Matthew 3, 7, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to him, coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Our Lord repeated that. Matthew 12, 24, but when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Matthew 12, 34, you brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you're evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. These religious leaders see Jesus and they say, He does what He does by the power of Satan. Jesus says, You give evidence that you are from Satan, of Satan. He's your father. You're a brood of vipers. Matthew 23 29, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. This is our Lord speaking. For you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus, you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? 
religious leaders, spiritual leaders, but they belong to a family of snakes. And they descend from the serpent of old. Their father is the devil. And so the religion they teach and practice is a distortion of what is true. It is demonic in its origins. Matthew 23, 15, our Lord said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. What you represent is the gathering in of souls, dragging them down to hell. The result of all of this was an oppressive religious system. Matthew 23, 4, our Lord said this, they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. What kind of religion did the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes of the time of Christ represent? A distortion of the Word of God. They took what was divinely given and could only be understood through regeneration, meant to be lived out in the power of love and faith. They turned it into an oppressive works righteousness system. What was to be a matter of true worship became distorted into the hard labor of human traditions. They took truth, they mixed it with error, and when you take truth and mix it with error, you have error. And so our Lord addresses this, I mean, immediately following this invitation to liberation. Matthew now gives us some examples of what the people needed to be liberated from. Their sins, of course, but the false religious system that existed in that sin. And so we, are, we, we encounter here two very important truths at the same time. We learn about the teachers of the law that they don't understand the law they teach. They, they want to leave the impression that they are experts in the law Lawyers, as it were, experts in the law, but they are actually ignorant of the law. And their applications of the law don't represent the heart of God. The other truth is that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law, so that He is the Lord over everything the law addresses. If you want to know what the law really means, ask Him. If you want to know how the law is to be applied, ask Him. Watch Him. In fact, before we're done this morning, we will see you have an amazing thing here. You have, you have sinners lording over the Sabbath, trying to tell the Lord of the Sabbath how to practice the Sabbath. Is that not amazing? Let's tell the Lord of the Sabbath how the Sabbath ought to be done. And our Lord exposes them by means of the very instrument that they claim to be enforcing, that is, by the Word of God. Three main points this morning, we'll just mention them as we come to them. Point number one, verse one, the action that offended. The action that offended. At that time, which just means around that time, it's a transition statement. Around that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. And his disciples became hungry and began to pick the heads of grain and eat. This is the offensive action on the part of the disciples. Traveling about on a Sabbath day with their master and Lord, they're hungry, passing through grain fields. They pluck some off, grind it in their hands, have a handful of snack food, and somehow the Pharisees see this. Verse 2, but when the Pharisees saw this, I want to ask how they saw it. How do you see this? We're going to see tonight in verses 9 and following, I mean, Jesus clearly is on their radar. His men are on their radar, and they are looking for something by which they can accuse him, charge him, find him guilty for the purpose of destroying him. 
So I don't know for sure how they saw this. Maybe they just happened to see it at that particular time. Or maybe they were spying him out. They have eyes on him and his disciples. Maybe following him around. I don't know. What I do know is they confront him. Point number two, the accusation that followed. You have the offensive action in verse 1. Now notice the accusation. Verse 2, when the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples do what is not lawful to do on a Sabbath. They charge the disciples of Jesus, and by extension, Jesus himself, because he leads them. They charge them with Sabbath violation. Now, as you know, the Sabbath, seventh day, our Saturday, set aside by God as a day of rest in the Old Testament law. It was for the nation Israel. Commemorated what God did when He created the world in six days and ceased His activity on the seventh. So by observing it, you recognize God as Creator and Lord over everything that is made. God promised throughout the Old Testament Scriptures to take care of His people as they obeyed Him in this matter and every other matter under the law. So you, you think about not only the, the weekly Sabbaths, but the other Sabbaths you find in the Old Testament, including how they were to sow their crops and, and reap them. And there were years that were identified that they were not to work uh, the land during those years. This was all, What I'm saying is this was also an acknowledgement that God is supplier. He's not just Lord over everything that he's made, but he takes care of his people. So you don't have to go out and try to take care of yourself on the seventh day. You can rest and God will take care of you. He takes care for his people by providing in six days what they'll need for seven. A part of Sabbath observance, the very essence of it was, it was a day of rest. In that sense, God did this for mankind. It was a kindness. It was a way to ensure that people were not abused. In the life of the nation, everyone was afforded this day of rest. Exodus 20, verse 8, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son, or your daughter, your male servant, or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. And you find that command numerous times in the Old Testament. Well, as you know, the Jewish leaders did with the Sabbath what they did with all of the law of God. They took biblical teaching, biblical instruction, biblical restrictions, and they piled up their traditions on top of it. They went beyond what Scripture said and made their traditions based on Scripture as authoritative as Scripture. Talked about this last Sunday night, how legalism functions. Well, they were, they were a part of that formal kind of legalism, trying to earn your way to heaven. And so they took the commands of God and they added to them, probably initially with sincerity. So, so God's law says that we're not to work on the Sabbath. Well, what, what is work? What would violate that? And so you have these you know, rabbinical discussions about what constitutes work, what, what would be allowed, what wouldn't be allowed, probably with sincerity. You know, you begin to try to parse that out and say, well, what, what would please God, what would displease Him? But eventually what that turned into was an oppressive set of traditions that took on an authority equal with what God said in the Bible. So now we're not just dealing with what God said, we're dealing with what the rabbis say about what God said. And it's treated with equal authority. And they did this not just with work on the Sabbath, but also travel restrictions and all sorts of things. What did the disciples do wrong, according to the Pharisees? It seems, based upon the discussion that follows, what, what they were perceived to have done wrong was to work. 
The Old Testament law made provision if you're passing through a grain field of a neighbor you could take and, and eat in passing. They were doing nothing wrong from that standpoint. The Pharisees would have known that. But you, you were prohibited from reaping from your neighbor's field. You, you can't go, on, go, go through the field passing through and you know, basically harvest his crops. Can't do that. But if you're just passing through and you get hungry, you, you grab some of it and you turn it into something you can throw into your mouth, you've not done anything wrong. So what they, they must have been fixed on was the, was the process of, of turning it into a snack. You've, you've taken heads of grain, you've dealt with them in your hands, that, that's reaping and winnowing and you violated the Sabbath. You've worked on the Sabbath, you've worked, that was work. Give you a sense of this, in, in what is called the Jerusalem Talmud, you have 39 categories of labor prohibited on the Sabbath. Now, the Jerusalem Talmud is a, is a, it's a compiling of, of Jewish oral tradition. It was, it was actually compiled after the time of Christ, hundreds of years after the time of Christ, but it does give you insight, remembering that it's tradition passed on through, through the uh, generations. It does give you insight into the sort of traditions that built up around the law of God even during the time of Christ. Listen to these 39 acts of labor prohibited on the Sabbath. The generative categories of acts of labor prohibited on the Sabbath are 40 less one. One, he who sows, plows, reaps, binds sheaves, threshes, winnows, selects fit from unfit produce or crops, grinds, sifts, kneads, bakes, he who shears wool, washes it, beats it, dyes it, spins, weaves, makes two loops, weaves two threads, separates two threads, ties, unties, sews two stitches, tears in order to sew two stitches. He who traps a deer, slaughters it, flays it, salts it, cures its hide, scrapes it, and cuts it up. He who writes two letters erases two letters in order to write two letters. He who builds, tears down. He who puts out a fire, kindles a fire. He who hits with a hammer. He who transports an object from one domain to another. Lo, these are the 40 generative acts of labor less one. Would that not be exhausting? And if you think, well, but that's after the time of Christ. Well, remember, we see evidence of the same kind of thing here but in other statements that are just as crazy is the word that comes to my mind. Matthew 23, verse 16, Woe to you blind guides who say if anyone swears by the temple, it's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he's bound by his oath. Swear by the temple, you're okay. Swear by the gold of the temple, now you're bound. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that's on the altar, he's bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law. I mean, you tithe down to the herbs in your garden, but you neglect the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy. And faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guide, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. So the act that offends, passing through a grain field on a Sabbath day, they're hungry, take, a, take heads of grain, turn it into something that they can throw into their mouth. Pharisees see this. What do they charge Christ and his disciples with? You have violated the Sabbath. You have violated Sabbath law. In what way? Probably what they have in mind is you're working. That's working on the Sabbath. 
How does Jesus respond to the accusation? How does he respond to the charge? He gives three answers. Each of these answers says something about himself. Each of these answers says something about the religious leaders. He both exposes them and he exalts the truth about himself. Points, once again, to the truth about himself. And he finishes there in verse 8 with these words, For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. So let's look at these three answers. The first answer compares Jesus with David. Jesus with David. You see it in verses 3 and 4. But he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he became hungry, he and his companions? How he entered the house of God and they ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those with him, but for the priests alone? And before we get into this specific example that Jesus uses, I want you to notice that three times he takes the men who claim to be defending the Sabbath, which would mean they're defending the Word of God. Three times he takes these men who claim to be defending the Word of God to the Word of God and exposes them with their lack of knowledge of the Scriptures. You notice that in verse 3? How does it begin? Have you not read... Verse 5, or have you not read in the law? And then he says in verse 7, but if you had known what this means, you suffer from ignorance. You don't know the law. You claim to be teaching and enforcing, and even what you know of it, you don't understand properly. You miss its meaning. Your condemnation of these men demonstrates your lack of ability with the Word of God. In fact, Jesus gives the verdict, doesn't He, in verse 7, when He says, but if you had known what this means, I desire compassion and not a sacrifice, notice, you would not have condemned the innocent. These men are innocent of the charge. And if you had known the Word of God, instead of your traditions, you would not have condemned the innocent. You would not have condemned my disciples. Quick side note, but it's an important one. You need to know the world is full of people making an appeal to Scripture who don't rightly handle Scripture. How frightening it is to me to hear these words. But my pastor preaches from the Bible. Well, that that could be really good. But it doesn't guarantee that it's really good. There are lots of men who open up this book and then adulterate it. They open it, they use it, they claim authority from it, they try to enforce authority from it, but they don't understand it rightly. The world is full of people who make appeal to the Scripture, but they don't understand the Scriptures. It hasn't stopped with the Pharisees, it goes on to our own day certainly taking place in the early, early church. 1 Timothy 1.3, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith, certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion. And then he says this, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. They're confident in what they're saying. They're just wrong. And so beware of that. Beware of that. Our Lord directs them to Scripture, but now He's going to force them to encounter a right handling of it. Have you not read what David did when he became hungry? He and his companions. How he entered the house of God 
And they ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those with him, but for the priests alone. What's he talking about? He's talking about 1 Samuel chapter 21. Why don't you turn over there real quickly and look at it with me. 1 Samuel 21, the first verse. 1 Samuel chapter 21, verse 1. What is going on in 1 Samuel 21? David is on the run. He's on the run fleeing from King Saul who has lost his mind. 1 Samuel 15, Saul is rejected as king. 1 Samuel 16, David is identified as king. And now a jealous Saul, an increasingly unstable Saul, is seeking David's life. David's on the run. Verse 1, then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest, and Ahimelech came to meet David trembling. So he recognizes David. He says to him, why are you alone and no one with you? And David said to him, like the priest, the king has charged me with a matter and said to me, let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. There's some discussion about, does David have in mind here instruction from Yahweh? Or does he have in mind, is he um, engaging in I could say it this way, some wartime deception. This is something he's, he's having to do in order to accomplish something that is not sinful given the circumstances. I've made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Verse 3, now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread. If the young men have kept themselves from women, this is the bread of presence, 12 loaves put out every Sabbath. This is a Sabbath day in all likelihood, which is why Christ references it. And David answered the priest, truly women have been kept from us as always when I go on an expedition. The men have refrained from sexual activity. This is, this is in keeping with wartime. Whenever we go out in battle, this is what we practice. The vessels of the young men are holy even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which is removed before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away. And that was the Sabbath day. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. Then David said to Ahimelech, And have you not here a spear or a sword at hand? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. It's a dangerous situation. David is having to be, having to be very careful, but he and his men are hungry. He, at, he, he arrives at the tabernacle and not. He asks for bread. They don't have anything in terms of common bread. The only thing they have is the bread of the presence. It's holy only the priests are to partake of it. But he, re he receives it and he eats. What only by the law of God, only the priest should have had. What has David done? He has violated the law. What have his men done? They violated the law. I mean, in black and white as it's written. But nowhere is David condemned for that because of the special circumstances. And what made the circumstances special is that Saul has been rejected as king, 1 Samuel 15, and David has been anointed as king, 1 Samuel 16. This is the, the king of Israel, as it were, in need, and his life is in danger. And so these special circumstances allowed for special actions. And by the way, we'll see this tonight, in the next scene, Jesus points out that these accusers, these judges, themselves understand this and practice this. Look at verse 11. He said to them, what man is there among you who has a sheep? And if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, what do you do? Do you say, I can't work on the Sabbath? And what do you do? You take hold of it. You lift it out. Don't you? Of course, the answer is yes. This is what they would do. 
What, what is the logic of Christ in bringing up this example about David? What, what, what logic is operating here? I think it's this. In David, you have a clear violation of the law as it is written. Yet he is not condemned due to special circumstances, and those special circumstances had to do with a special person, David. Someone greater than David is here. The Messiah, as he refers to, this is clear messianic language in verse 8, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. That is a claim they would have heard clearly. Someone greater than David is here. And my disciples have not violated Scripture. Where is the command that you're charging them with? Here you have David that violated Scripture, but special circumstances made it allowable. The special circumstances had to do with the special man in these circumstances. Here you have the Son of Man, you have the Messiah, you have the King of Kings, the King of Israel. His men have not violated Scripture, yet you're condemning them. The kingdom of God has come near. The King is in their presence. He has allowed His men to do this, which means it's allowable. If the King, who is the Lord of the Sabbath allows his men to do it, it's allowable because he has the authority to determine what his Sabbath restrictions are meant for and how they are to be applied. And what is on display is the fact that these Pharisees don't understand the real meaning of the Sabbath. Meant to protect the day of rest for the people of God. Yes, yes, obedience to it was a matter of faith and it acknowledged the greatness of God But what it was never intended to do was to enslave people. It was given for a blessing, not for enslavement. In fact, our Lord makes that very point. The Gospel of Mark chapter 2, verse 25, He said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat and also gave to those who were with him and he said to them the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath so the son of man is Lord even of the Sabbath the Sabbath was made for man not man for the Sabbath it was meant to be a blessing to people not to enslave them and the Lord of the Sabbath is on the scene and he can tell you what the restrictions were meant for and what they were not meant for So an answer that compares Jesus and David. Second, notice an answer that compares Jesus and the temple. Verse 5, Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple break the Sabbath and are innocent? David was innocent given the special circumstances. Well, the priests are innocent when they break the Sabbath. But I say to you that something greater than the temple is here. Not every Israelite was expected to deal with the Sabbath in the same way. The Sabbath law was given to the nation, but there was a group of men belonging to that nation who were exempted. They worked on the Sabbath. They worked on the Sabbath because they had temple service. The same God who gave the law regarding the Sabbath gave the law regarding the temple service, and there were sacrifices made on Sabbath days. So that the priests had to work on the Sabbath. And no one ever accused them of sin when they were busy on the Sabbath. No one ever thought they were sinning because everyone understood that in their case, the temple trumped the Sabbath. The temple was greater than the Sabbath. In their case, the temple was greater than the Sabbath. Well... Accusers, judges, do you recognize something in your presence right now is greater than the temple? If the temple is greater than the Sabbath, what do you think is greater, the Sabbath law or the kingdom of God arrived? With the king to whom the Sabbath law points, the salvation to which the Sabbath law points, the rest to which the Sabbath law points, points 
It's here. He's here. Something greater than the temple is present. If the priests are not condemned, if they're innocent, if they're not guilty because they're operating in something greater than the Sabbath, then how can the king himself and his disciples be guilty of something when the Lord of the Sabbath is the one leading them, guiding them, directing them? He's exempt from the standpoint he will define it, he will delineate it, he's the Lord over it. And so his servants are shielded. If they need correction, he'll give it. D.A. Carson said it well. He said, Jesus' argument then provides an instance from the law itself in which the Sabbath restrictions were superseded by the priests because their cultic responsibilities took precedence. The temple, as it were, was greater than the Sabbath. But now Jesus claims something greater than the temple is here, and that too takes precedence over the Sabbath. The law points to him and finds its fulfillment in him. Not only then have the Pharisees mishandled the law, but they have failed to perceive who Jesus is. The authority of the temple laws shielded the priests from guilt. The authority of Jesus shields his disciples from guilt. If you understand who Jesus is, then you recognize his authority to lead his men in any way he sees fit. Third answer. Verse 6, But I say to you that something greater than the temple is here, but if you had known what this means, I desire compassion and not a sacrifice. If you had known the true meaning of that statement, you would not have condemned the innocent. That is a, a powerful statement on the part of our Lord. He's saying, if you had the capacity to understand the true meaning of this statement from God's Word, which would, by the way, would mean they're regenerate, spiritual men, then you would not have seen what you just saw and condemned it. He, he's getting to the heart. So, so we have an answer that compares Jesus and David, an answer that compares Jesus and the temple. Now you have an answer that compares Jesus and the accusers. In verses 7 and 8, right? They're, they're lording over the Sabbath, but he's the Lord of the Sabbath. And so he quotes from an Old Testament passage that makes clear they have a superficial approach to God that is utterly rejected by God. This is what's really wrong with them. They are not true worshipers. They don't understand the law they teach. They don't know the God whose laws they are trying to enforce. They read the Word of God, but they don't understand the words of God. Jesus brings up Hosea 6, 6. Hosea chapter 6, verse 1 says, Come, let us return to the Lord, for He has torn us, that He may heal us. He has struck us down, and He will bind us up. After two days, He will revive us. On the third day, He will raise us up that we may live before Him. Let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. Hosea giving voice to the mindset of the people of the time. We just need to know the Lord's going to take care of us. We just need to know it's all going to be okay. And in this case, what is filling their, their mouths is a false hope. It's not genuine. Listen to the next words. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. Therefore, I have hewn them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and my judgment goes forth as the light. You say it's going to be okay, but it's not going to be okay. Not in your current condition. Because while you multiply your sacrifices, while you find comfort in your formal religious activity, 
What is missing is love for God. The knowledge of God. Next verse. For I desire steadfast love, not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. You have mistaken what I gave to you that that is legitimate, that needs to be practiced as a matter of faith and love. These laws you have regarding sacrifice and other things, yes, God gave that to you, but never to be practiced apart from love for God and the knowledge of God. A matter of worship, a matter of faith, a matter of love. This is how the laws are to be obeyed. You have the words, but you don't have the heart of it. You've missed its point. When you read the law of God rightly, if you're an Old Testament saint and you read the law of God rightly, it produces a transformed heart that strives to please God in genuine faith. These men are strangers to these things because their approach to God is formal, external, superficial, legalistic. And what they missed above all, as a result, is God staring them in the face. If you really knew the Scriptures, if you knew and paid attention to every part of Scripture, you would have recognized the Son of Man. You would recognize standing before you is the God who created everything in six days and instituted the Sabbath law for Israel. You would recognize the Lord of the Sabbath. Do you know He's the Lord of the Sabbath? If you had known what that verse means, you would have never condemned my disciples. You have the law, you've built upon it your traditions, and your traditions miss the point. Your interpretation and application of the law misses the point because you don't know the author. You don't know his heart. So let me finish by asking us, is it possible to know the Scriptures and miss the heart of the message? Is it possible to know the Bible but miss the heart of its message? You've got the words right, but you've got the meaning and the application wrong because you don't know the author. I'm saying, is it possible to have people sitting in churches like this one where you... You want to know the Bible as a matter of academic interest and you, and, and you read it and you study it and you hear about it and you talk about it, but you're a stranger to what it produces at the heart level because you don't know the author. Anyone hearing me today, that that's you. Here's the good news. If you ever recognize that that's you, the Lord has been at work in your heart, opening your heart to see your need for Jesus. You can turn today and come to Christ, and He will save you. And now you'll know the Word of God in truth. Is it possible to substitute external observance for internal devotion? To substitute external practices for what is to to begin at the heart level and flow out from the heart level? I think even as genuine believers, we can admit, don't we battle that? It's Sunday morning. What do we do? We get up at at our house and we get dressed and we make the drive and we come and we sit. And once we're here, we're glad we're here. But isn't it possible even to sit in a worship service like this one and to really forget why we're here? To sing songs in our minds or somewhere else. To substitute where your body is for where your heart is supposed to be. Lord, help us, amen, not to do that. Is it possible to condemn what God doesn't condemn because you misunderstand the whole point of what you're trying to apply? We talked about that Sunday night. I don't think I need to go over it again this morning. If you weren't here Sunday evening, you need to listen to that. It's something we have to battle against as a congregation that holds high the Word of God. Amen. Hold His Word high. But we've got to fight against behavioral legalism, which really represents a misunderstanding of Scripture, therefore a misapplication of it. And so we find ourselves condemning what God doesn't condemn because we've taken our, our application of Scripture, our personal application, our traditions, as it were, and we've infused them 
in our minds with the same kind of authority that belongs only to God's words. God's words and your words are not the same. Amen? So Lord, help us not to be found condemning people where God doesn't. Finally, is it possible then that you can speak of Jesus but not know Him? Say a lot in His name but have no relationship with Him. This happens, we're going to see it tonight, the heartlessness, the coldness, the cruelty of people who say they know God, but they don't, because what they end up doing is they take His Word then and they weaponize it. They don't really care about other people. They care about getting their own way. So is it possible to talk about Jesus but not know Him? Say that you've trusted in Him, but in reality your life shows you're more like a Pharisee than you would admit. Lord, help us. And Lord, save those in this room, those hearing my voice, who have your son's name on their lips, but he's far from their hearts. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, I pray that we as your people would recognize that we are in a constant spiritual struggle. So grateful, Lord, that you've taken hold of us. You will not let us go. Our sufficiency is in the head, it's in Christ. Our sufficiency is in your word. And the Holy Spirit who has taken up residence in our lives, he will go on teaching us and applying your word to us in ways that transform our lives from the inside out. Save us, Lord, from a superficial encounter with Scripture. Save us from a mishandling of it, a misapplication of it. Build in us, Lord, a, a relationship to Scripture that looks to the author of it and loves you, loves your Son, loves your Spirit so that we know your heart. We read your Word and we see the whole picture, not just the externals, but the heart of the matter. Lord, would you teach us in that kind of way? And again, Lord, would you have mercy on those who only know an empty religion that is wearisome, exhausting, and set them free by bringing them to the one who alone can make us free indeed, the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.